Good morning. I uh, want to ask you a question. I want to begin with a question this morning. How many of you had this experience similar to what I've had in my life where I really wanted God to do something? I really was seeking his face about it and asking for something uh, miraculous, and it seemed like nothing happened. Anybody had that experience? Beside me, yeah. I think if we're honest, a lot of us have had that experience. Um, I have really, really uh, poor eyesight. Uh, Begin when I was a fifth grader. I got glasses when I was fifth grader, and I've uh, hated glasses ever since. And I remember coming to Christ at 13, and in that year, about 14 or 15 of age, um, I remember seeking God for uh, healing of my eyes. Any of you been there or something like that? And I really prayed, say, God, would you just heal my eyes? And one day in summer, I woke up, and I remember thinking, I can really see well today. God must answer my prayers. And I, I remember going up and down the block in wonderment, saying, God, you healed my eyes, you healed my eyes. Evidently, that's not the case, because I'm standing before you with glasses on today. Um, and and I, oftentimes when it comes to the miraculous moving of God or the, uh, you know, signs and wonders and healing kind of thing, we, we, we get baffled, like, what's going on? Why don't we see more of that? And, and, and is there a problem with our faith? Is there a problem with um, how we're approaching God and those things? And, and we're going to dive into that subject matter some uh, this morning. Um, Jim Garlow, who was a former pastor of Skyline Wesleyan Church in uh, San Diego, California, at one point in his pastoral ministry, he decided he was really going to seek after God for healing. He felt like that was something God was pushing him into. And uh, he, so he began to really just pray for people to be healed. And he wrote a book about it. The book is called God Still Heals. In fact, if you want to have a really good read on this topic matter that's transparent and honest and, and very fruitful, this is a good book by James Garlow, God Still Heals. But he notes early on in this seeking out of God for healing that he, he was seeing a pattern. Everybody he prayed for died. And he kind of said tongue-in-cheek, well, that is a healing, amen? Because they're in heaven, right? But he noticed this. He would begin to come and approach somebody who wasn't doing real well and ask them if they wanted to be prayed for, and they said, no, because when you pray for me, I die. I don't really want to die yet. And he started to notice in that pattern. And uh, anyway, if that's tantalized you, this is, a, is a, maybe a good book for you uh, to read and to, to, to dive into the subject matter uh, a bit more than I'm going to talk about this morning, at least in that regard. Um, what we're going to look at this morning is a place that the Gospel of John naturally brings us to. That is miracles. And the making of a miracle and what goes into the making uh, of a miracle. Uh, so we're going to look at that topic matter this morning. We, we're through John chapter 1. Uh, we, we're, we're, we've been introduced to Jesus. He's been born. And now he's been launched into ministry as a man. We know that uh, there's this high understanding of who Christ is. He's, he, he, he came bringing grace and truth. Now we get to chapter 2. And guess what? There's only three years until Christ dies. So John chapter 2 through the rest of the gospel, John, is on the three years of ministry that Christ did that's so insightful and so full of wisdom and application for us. This morning as we get to chapter 2, we're getting into this making of a miracle moment that we uh, get to experience with Jesus. Um, And there's some insights it gives us about 
the ingredients that are, are essential for experiencing a miracle. But get this, it's not a prescription. It's not a one, two, three, four, A, B, C, D, and you're going to get a miracle. God owes you a miracle. We need to quit thinking like that. So what I'm sharing with you is not a prescription for the miraculous, but rather it is a way that we can cultivate an atmosphere of receptivity for the miraculous moving of our God. So we can't manipulate him. We just can't manipulate him. God's sovereign, amen? He's in control. He does things that we don't know why he does it because he's sovereign and he's in control. The first miracle that, that the Lord Jesus performs here and the kind of the circumstances around it reminds me a lot of my first day of work at 3M back in 1980. I was introduced by my boss to several coworkers that day. He walked into this kind of general area. I was introduced to my coworkers, and then Bob told me, here's your desk. And I remember, okay. And he said, I'll be right back. And he went out and to his office, and he came back with 13 folders that look like this. This is called paper folders, all right? We don't do that anymore. We have computers, right? And he came out to my desk, and he did this. There you go. You'll figure it out as you work through them. That was my training session. It lasted about 10 minutes. And he said, if you have any questions, just ask, but you'll learn by doing the work. And I remember my very first question was this to a coworker. Where do I find these? I had no idea where to find a pencil. I had no pencil. I had no idea. What, so my first, very first question at 3M as an engineer was, can you tell me, please, where I can find a pencil? And, and that was my experience there at 3M. And here's what, what, what's going on. Bob expected me to just go after it and get the work done. There was an expectation. You got a college degree in mechanical engineering. I assume you know what you're doing. You've interned. You've done all this. Here you go. Just go to work. I, I expect you to do this kind of thing. And there was this expectation behind the methodology. Now get this. When we witness this first miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see the very first ingredient behind it is expectation. But I'm jumping ahead. It's time to read the story to you here from John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. I'll go through verse 11 this morning. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. Now, I want to just explain something to you this morning real quickly. If you're reading John chapter 1 and and read into John chapter 2, you'll notice that there's a lot of next day this happened, next day this happened, next day this happened. Uh, And there's this kind of desire sometimes to put things into a chronological order that aren't really in a chronological order. This isn't like he did three things in chapter one, next day, next day, now this is the third day. That's not what this is about. What was going on there, if you read it closely, was at the end of John chapter one, Jesus called the disciples. That happened by the Jordan River because John the Baptist was there and a couple of his disciples began to follow Jesus Christ. It was by Jericho. Evidently, Jesus and the newly called disciples traveled from there to Cana. It's a two and a half day trip. So basically, what John is saying in the gospel, on the third day, we were walking along on the third day, and uh, a wedding took place. They had arrived in Cana, and a wedding took place. Jesus' mother was there. Verse 2, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. I love the Lord's response. Woman, (laughs) why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. 
His mother said to the servants, this is a classic mom. She didn't even hear him. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So let me ask you a question. If you were to do the miraculous in your own life, and you were given the choice of the miracle order you were going to uh, do, what would be the first miracle that you would do? Would it be changing water to wine? Would that be the very first miracle? Would that be the top miracle on your list? Hey, if I ever get a chance to do the miraculous, the first thing I'm going to do is turn water to wine. Or would you think, nah, I want to raise someone from the dead. I want to heal the paralytic. I want to cause the blind to see. And here's something you have to note here. The point isn't the miracle that was done here. The point is that Jesus is being revealed as what? A miracle doer. That's the big point of this first miracle. And we can see that there are key ingredients that provided a favorable atmosphere for this miracle to transpire. I'm calling this miracles that foster, or ingredients that foster the miraculous. But I liked what Aaron said earlier on as he was praying. I wish I would have wrote that in here, but it's the what and why of the miraculous. So whichever you like better, that's your choice. It doesn't really matter. But what we're going to talk about is some of those things that are just kind of essential that foster the miraculous. Listen to this qualification. This is not a prescription. This is not a prescription. You don't do ABC and then expect the miraculous. It's because you've done ABC. God's sovereign. God does as he wills and chooses. But what we're about to look like surely will help. Create a situation ripe for the miraculous. So the first thing, first ingredient is expectation. Expectation. Mary, the mother of the Lord, expected Jesus to do the miraculous. She didn't ask, can you do the miraculous? She didn't doubt he could do the miraculous. She expected him to do it. She believed he could do it. She had good reason. After all, he was miraculously conceived in her womb. This was announced miraculously by an angel of the Lord as that angel visited her. Not only that, even her association with her husband Joseph was miraculous. He didn't know if he should marry her. And in a dream, God said, marry her. That was pretty miraculous. And in a dream later on, God told Joseph, hey, take Mary and Jesus and flee from here because you're not safe. That was told to him miraculously. And in the same way, miraculously, he was told, it's all right to go back now. It's safe. So she had seen so many miraculous things with Christ. She just expected him to move miraculously. We're told in the Bible that Jesus returned to his hometown as 
you know, an adult ministering in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he couldn't do, or ministering in his own name. <laughs> anyway, he couldn't do a lot of, of ministry there because they didn't believe in him. They didn't believe in him, and so they didn't expect him to do anything, and those expectations were met. Nothing was done. So let's have a reflection moment here. Let me ask you this question. Do you expect Jesus to do the miraculous in your life? Do you have that as an expectation? Do you expect Jesus Christ to do the miraculous in your life? Sometimes there's a struggle to believe that he'll actually do the miraculous in our lives. And I think rather than trying to shove that down and not admit that that struggle is going on, I, I, I think maybe what we need to become is more transparent before the Lord and let him know that we're having the struggle. Um, in, in the Gospel of Mark, a, a boy with an evil spirit was brought to the disciples um, to have them drive out the evil spirit, but they couldn't do it. So the boy was brought to Jesus, and Jesus asked the dad, how long has this been going on? And the dad answered, well, this has been going on since childhood. Then the man said these words, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. You can kind of hear the heart of the father there. How my boy here. I am always astounded, even as I've read this so many times, at the Lord Jesus' answer back. If you can? If you can? If what? If I can? And then he goes on and says, everything is possible for him who believes. Now, I love the father's response back to that. He says, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. Ever been there? I know, God, you're supposed to do these things. I know, God, you're supposed to heal. I know, God, you're supposed to do the miraculous. I believe it. I believe it. Help me in my unbelief. I think we need to pray that. I think we need to have that honest dialogue with God. So here's reflection point two. If you're struggling with unbelief, ask God to grace you to believe. Just ask him. God, I admit, I, I know I should believe. Somehow it needs to travel that 12 inches from my head to my heart. It has to become a faith thing. I need to believe. Grace me to believe. Of course, faith is really important for the miraculous to take place. But please understand, it's just a piece of the puzzle. It's not the whole answer either. I've seen so many people say, well, we simply don't see the miraculous of God today because we don't have enough faith. <sighs> I think that's a little simplistic. I don't think that's a totally right answer. I've heard this fact multiple times, and I've been told this multiple times as a pastor. Is if we just had enough faith, we would see God do the miraculous. Yeah, maybe. One time I remember when I was at New Hope in Williston, I was in the foyer like our foyer out there, and I was interacting and rubbing shoulders with some of the folks of the church. At that time, my mom was going through a tough time of her life. She had glioblastoma. She had two golf ball-sized tumors in her brain. They had removed. And if you know anything about glioblastoma, you know it's 100% fatal. It, you die from it. And usually within six months to 18 months, uh, that's the longevity of people diagnosed with that usually. And so we were going through that situation, my mom and our family, and I had been traveling back and forth to, to, to uh, Brooklyn Park multiple times uh, that fall. And so in that, in that foyer moment, this lady grabbed me and said, you know, if your mom had faith, she'd be healed. 
Thank God for the encouragement of the body of Christ. Amen. And I, at the moment, said, what did you just say to me? You know, and I, I remember thinking, ah, and I started to walk away. I started to walk away. And I turned around and said, listen, listen. The Bible also says that we are ordained 70 years and 80 if by strength. I said, my mom's 73. At some point, something's going to get her. Amen? Listen, maybe you haven't thought about this before. We die of something. We don't get healed, so to speak. We die. We get 70, 80, 90 years old. We die from something. Cancer gets us. A heart attack gets us. Something gets us. We succumb to it, and then we go to be with the Lord, which is the ultimate healing anyway. But I said to her, you're being too simplistic here. It's not just a matter of faith. It's also a matter of sovereignty of God and the days he's ordained for her and all that. And I didn't say, I wish I could say I said it with that much grace. (laughs) I didn't say it that nicely. But here's the thing. I think I'm discovering about this whole topic of healing and the miraculous and all that kind of stuff. Here's the thing. I think God interacts with us a lot more than we realize. And he always does answer these prayers. We just may not be astute enough to understand how he's answering it. See, and this is reflection point number three. This is so important to get. God may deliver you from something. Praise God. Amen, right? That's the ones we go, cool, wow, God's sovereign, God's powerful, God's great. Or he may grace you to go through it, learning to depend on him more. You're either delivered or you depend on him more. But one of those two things happen if you're a sincere follower of the Lord and you're really seeking his face. Either he delivers you from it or he graces you to depend on him more as you go through it. Back to my days in Williston, I remember I ran into this one situation that was just really tough. Uh, uh, a friend of mine at the church, his name is Dan Holm, wasn't Dan Holm. Um, he was a great guy. I liked Dan a lot. He was uh, a good family man. He had a really good dad and good husband. Uh, was on the board and uh, served with sincerity. Well, he was diagnosed with cancer. He was 50 years old. I remember it so vividly at the time because... Dan was about five years older than me. I was 45 at the time. And so we prayed a lot for his healing, and nothing uh, appeared to be happening. So I was at his house one day, talking with Dan and praying with him. And at this point, his digestive system had totally shut down, and his stomach didn't work anymore. It didn't, it didn't have an opening. And so he was sucking on a, a root beer popsicle. He'd love the second of Pure popsicles, you know, because it gave him a little bit of a, uh, sorry, <laughs> it just gave him a little bit of relief. And so I was sitting with Dan and good friends. I don't know if you've ever gone through this, but I'm praying and I'm Norwegian. You know that, right? And so just like now, I started to cry. But Norwegians, we don't cry. They just, tears just leak out of the side of your eyes every now and then. And we try to restrain it, right? And so... Um, I was trying to restrain it, and I was kind of doing the, the leaking thing a little bit. And he looks at me and says, why are you crying? <laughs> I said, because I'm sad. 
about what you're going through? He goes, stop it. I said, I'm fine. I said, I love the Lord Jesus. I know where I'm going. I, I am so confident of what's going on in my life. He said, I'm just a go-getter. I'm just going to get there before you do. <laughs> and I sat there, and I, what? You know what I mean? And he goes, no. He said, I mean that with all my heart. He said, I'm okay. I'm okay. I know where I'm going. God is gracing me in the middle of this thing. I'm just going to beat you there. I'll say hi to you when you show up. I said, okay. <laughs> it was the strangest, most profound moment I'd had up to that point in, in ministry to see the faith that this guy had. You had to know what he was going through. It was horrendous. And I really begin to realize, you know, God, you may not deliver us from something, but you grace us to go through it. And that's just as miraculous. We're all going to die sometime from something. So we're going to need to know how to depend on God and go through that. And that's going to be as miraculous as anything he ever delivers us from. Now, Mary demonstrated more than expectation when it came uh, to Jesus doing the miraculous. She saw a need, and she had compassion for that need. These people were going to run out of wine, and to her, that was a big deal. She felt the angst of the moment. Now, I read the story, and I go, eh, so what? You'll be fine, right? I evidently don't have the compassion of Mary. That's why I'm not in the story Mary is. She had compassion for the need that was arising, which brings us to this second set of ingredients. I put them together because they go together. Need and compassion. Need and compassion. It seems that need and compassion are often the markers, the birthing agents, the catalysts for the miraculous. And over the years, I've witnessed a lot of people wanting to see a miracle. And oftentimes, I think the motives are entirely wrong. Well, we just want to see God move, or I don't have beliefs, so prove to me that you are God, or it just would be neat to experience what um, the people of the New Testament experience. But I don't think that's a reason God's going to do the miraculous. He's going to do the miraculous when there's true need and there's great compassion. In the early church, you, you just see this. They were out there. They had no plan B. They were hanging out there. God, if you don't come through and if you don't do something here, then basically that's the end of me or the end of this group of people, whatever. And because of this great need, and then you would see this compassion to share Christ and compassion on the plight of others. You see these things coupled together, and what do we see happen? All kinds of healings and signs and wonders. So here's... An application. This is what I want to major on this morning. I want you to think about this with me. Are you in need of something right now? Are you in need? Let me ask you this question. Have you brought that need to God? Have you brought that need to God? In fact, I provide a blank for you in the note-taking guide so that um, you can write down, I have this need right now. I have this need. And I just realized today, God, I really, I'm, I'm not bringing it to you. I'm trying to handle it on my own. I'm trying to do it in an independent, self-sufficient way. The reason I think we don't see God move sometimes is simply because, as James uh, says in chapter 4, we have not because we ask not. And when we ask, we may be asking for the wrong motives. But at any rate, we have not because we ask not. And, and so you're not going to experience the moving of God unless you ask. And you know, really, to the asking God sometimes is humbling. It's an admission. I can't do this on my own, God. I don't have a solution here. 
I need you. That's humbling. And sometimes we just don't want to humble ourselves that way. And therefore, we don't experience deliverance of our God. Second, second application question I have is this. Are you aware and do you care for others? Are you aware? Do you care for others? So here's where I want to get specific with you. What person right now is in your life? Who do you know? What is the trial that they're facing? Are you bringing that to God? Who do you know right now? What person comes to mind right now? I know this person. Oh, man, yeah, they're facing this kind of a trial. It's on my heart. I I know they're facing this. So here's my question. Are you bringing that to God and asking God to do something in their lives? See, need and compassion coupled with expectation begin to kind of form this really, you know, viable culture for the miraculous. And then there's this third thing that's so incredibly important, this third ingredient to the miraculous, and it's obedience. It's obedience. I love uh, what, what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said uh, uh, when it comes to obedience. He says, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient believes. See, only he who believes is obedient, and only he who is obedient really believes. So why obedience is so important of an ingredient when it comes to experiencing miraculous is it's an indice of belief. Ah, I believe in you enough, Jesus, to be obedient to your teachings and your ways and to do as you say. Good intentions don't equal obedience. They're good intentions. Obedience equals doing what God tells us to do. James says in James chapter 1, verse 22, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. What if the servants thought, well, you know, Mary, she's well-intentioned, but, you know, if we're going to make some wine here, I think we should go gather some grapes and throw them into these containers. Now, Jesus could have still turned that into wine, amen? But that's not what she asked them to do. She said, listen to what he says to do, and then do it. Don't change it, and whatever you do, don't ignore it. Mary was in the know about the Lord Jesus Christ. These servants were not. And she knew it was important to do exactly as he instructed. If we, like Mary, are going to experience some of the miraculous, we got to do what the Lord tells us to do. As I was putting this message together, I kept being drawn back to the book of James. And I began to think, you know, what if I read the book of James with this hard attitude that, you know, whatever you tell me to do here in the book of James, God, I'm just going to do it. Will that make my life more receptive to experiencing the miraculous? Yeah, it really would. As I got to the end of the book of James, I thought his, his final words were really, really telling in that regard. He said, you know, are any of you in trouble? Pray. Hmm. And he goes on to say, if, if any of you are happy, sing. I see Kyle do that all the time. He's always singing. Some others sing. Ben sings a lot. <laughs> I kind of like that. I'd sing a lot too, but I wouldn't be happy to other people. Um, and then he gets this other thought, this last thought. I like this last thought. Are you sick? Then call on the elders 
and have them pray over you and anoint you with oil, and the prayer offered in faith will heal. There's an obedience thing here. You seeing this? We're not going to experience the miraculous of God if we don't do these kinds of things. It's an obedience issue. And I love how he ends the book of James. How James ends his, his writing to us. He says, you know, Elijah was a man just like us. And he prayed. And for three and a half years, it didn't rain. And he prayed again. And it rained. And the crops were produced. But the point he's making is this. Don't think it's about the person. This isn't about Elijah. This is about the God that Elijah was praying to. And basically, James was saying, you too pray to him and to do the miraculous in your life. One last ingredient. This is so, super important. This, this is so important to experiencing a miracle. And it's the word action here. It's, it's the last ingredient, action. It is often in the doing that you experience the miraculous, often in the going, taking the risks, getting out there and serving, putting yourself out there for the Lord, that you experience the miraculous. The servants were told to fill up these ceremonial washing jars with water. Being servants, they didn't really have a choice. They had to do it. Um, it reminds me of a story, though. Sometimes we just have to take some kind of action. Now, I'm going to share this story, but it's just a silly story, but it's about taking action. At some point, you have to take action. A golfer's Aaron shot ended up on an anthill, and he squared up and took a big swing. Missed entirely, killing thousands and thousands of ants. Dacker took another swing and missed again. Once again, a wave of ants were destroyed. Panic-stricken insects were scurrying everywhere. One ant took charge. He said, follow me. He cried with authority. And the other ant said, where are we going? He said, we've got to get on that white round thing. It's the only safe place on this anthill. That's so bad. Action at some point. At some point, action. It's time for action. There's this passivity sometimes in Christianity that's alarming. And the reason I think we don't see God moving sometimes in our lives is simply because we're inactive. We're not actively following him. We're not serving after him. We're not seeing that we're sent to these places in culture. I, I've been, been really challenged lately by some of the stuff I've been studying is that, you know what? We need to maybe relabel ourselves. You are an everyday missionary. God has graced every single believer here with a sphere of influence, with certain gifts. As Ephesians 2.10 says, you're like a masterpiece of God. You're a God's masterpiece foreordained to do good works. So you have this skill set. You have this certain sphere of influence and relationship that nobody else in the whole world has. And you need to understand that you're in action for God. You're to bring Christ to bear on that situation. And as we take action, as we live out loud for God on purpose, guess what happens? We put ourselves in a place of experiencing the miraculous, experiencing the divine. The Old Testament story is told of a commander of the army of Aram who had leprosy. His name was Naaman. He had a Jewish servant girl. And she kept saying to Naaman, you know, if only my master would go to the prophet Elijah, you could be healed of your leprosy. And Naaman resisted this for a while, but finally gave in. And so they show up at Elijah's place. And Elijah doesn't even come out to see Naaman. Instead, he says, just tell him to go dip in the Jordan seven times. He'll be fine. 
This greatly offended Naaman. He thought that Elijah would come out and wave his hand over the spot and that, you know, make a big showing of this and he would be healed. And he gets really offended and walks away in a rage. And he's saying, and I can hear him muttering, well, the rivers are better where I come from, this dirty Jordan River. I don't want to go there anyway. And his servants gathered around him, his, his companions, and said, listen, Naaman, if Elijah would have asked you to do some great thing, would you not have done that? Go do this small thing and be, be healed. So Naaman makes his way to the Jordan River, dips down seven times, just like he was told, and he comes out, and he's clean. He experienced the miraculous hand of God. And his complexion, we're told, was like that of a young boy. And he declared, and he gave glory to God. He said, there is no God like the God in Israel. Hear this now. This is the summary of today's message. Hear this. Perhaps we make miracles too big. Perhaps they're found in small actions that we're willing to take in obedience. Done in compassion, seeing the needs of others, expecting Jesus to move. Perhaps we're making this too big of a topic. Perhaps if we would just start saying, God, I'm going to follow you in these small steps of actions. I'm going to be living my life out there, taking some risks being obedient to you. I'm going to lift my needs and the needs of others up to you. I'm going to have this compassion driving me as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to just expect you to do things. Maybe if we just start living like that, we'll see a lot more miracles. What do you think? I think we will. Because I think that's how the Lord moves. Do you notice how this reading ends? It ends with two outcomes, two reasons for the miraculous. One, it reveals the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, causes people to put their faith in Jesus. Two reasons for the miraculous. It reveals the glory of Jesus and causes people to put their faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you this week. Expect Jesus to move. Lift your needs and the needs of others up before the Lord. Have compassion. Be obedient Take action. That doesn't guarantee we'll experience the miraculous, but I think it will put us into a miraculous kind of favorable situation. And I liken it to this. You know, if I want to find a frog when I was growing up, I'd go to the swamp. Why? That's where frogs live. If I want to experience a miracle of the Lord Jesus Christ, I got to get into the right kind of environment. Expectation, need, compassion, obedience, And action. And I'll put myself in that right pond for experiencing the miraculous. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads, please? Lord God, I want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for this opportunity to talk for a few moments on the making of a miracle. It really is a message on the what and the why. And I want to thank you for this opportunity to just talk about how these things tend to work in our lives, Lord. So I want to lift up those to you this morning, Lord, that maybe are right now in that place where a miracle, a miracle is needed. Lord, I want to pray that, first of all, we'd have the expectation and that we'd lift our needs to you, Lord. Oh, I can imagine the needs here. Woo. God, 
Some need a miracle. Some need a deliverance when it comes to the marriage. Some need this when it comes to a parent-child relationship or a child-parent relationship. Some of us, Lord, are dealing with physical ailments, physical weaknesses, physical illnesses, Lord, that we need to lay at your feet. Some of us have been wounded so deeply, scarred, Lord, in our hearts that we need a, a healing, Lord, there of an emotional kind or a relational kind, Lord, whatever be the case. Some of us are anxious and worried. Some of us are in job situations that aren't working out real well. Whatever the need be, Lord, I pray that we lift that up to you now. And Lord, I pray that you'd put on our minds someone else that's in great need today, that we'd lift them up too, Lord, and have compassion on them. And Lord, I pray that we'd walk obedient, that we'd be uh, ones who would take to heart uh, instructions like, like James at ends with saying, have you have trouble? Pray. Are you sick? Call on the elders to lay hands on you, anoint you with oil. God, may we become obedient in that regard. And then, Lord, I, I, I just want to pray that we live these lives of everyday missionaries where we're understanding we're uniquely influenced, uniquely gifted, uniquely positioned, Lord, uh, to be an everyday ambassador for, for, for you, Jesus. That we just walk our life in that a constant awareness. And God, I just pray that you would grace us and to see some other miraculous. Lord, we love you so much. I thank you for this day. As we end this song, may it be a declaration of our heart to you, Jesus. In your name, God, and all God's people said,